The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. In 1980, Carl Sagan, atheist, uh, scientist, and TV personality, opened a new TV series with these words, quote, The cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be, end quote. Now, by the word cosmos, Carl Sagan meant the physical universe, the universe of atoms, of matter and energy, impersonal, laws of science, and everything that there is in the universe can be explained by matter and energy. This is the view philosophically known as materialism. Material stuff is all there is. And by his strong assertion, he was denying the metaphysical, the spiritual worlds. The very world we're about to study this morning, we're about to step into and study from Revelation 12 that you heard Herbert read. A few moments ago, this is a world of invisible, personal, spiritual beings. The world of God on his throne, we've already been seeing, but also of Satan as an intelligent, real, spiritual being. The world of angels and demons, the heavenly realms. So as we turn to Revelation 12, we're about to walk into that world and look around. We're going to look back in history, back to the time when Jesus was born. And we're going to see behind the veil of the wicked actions of King Herod to the spiritual dimensions of what was going on at that time at Bethlehem. We're going to see that it was all uh, a malevolent, intelligent plot on the part of Satan to kill the Messiah. We're also briefly going to look even further back in time to the time when Satan fell from heaven to earth. And we're going to look ahead at that also next week. We're going to look ahead in time, based on this chapter, to the climactic showdown, the final showdown between the devil and his angels, demons, and the people of God on earth, and the kind of cataclysmic sufferings that Satan and his henchmen are going to put the people of God through. That's also open for us in this chapter, and we'll continue in following chapters. Now, every single week that I preach through Revelation, I have to struggle with the question of relevance. You know, I have to make a case to you, 21st century American hearers, that are very practical people, uh, very pragmatic people, thinking, what does a red dragon have to do with my life? You know, maybe you came in this morning with physical troubles, you came in this morning with ailments, maybe you have a workload that's overwhelming, maybe you're having some successes in your life, maybe you're pregnant and expecting your first child or your fourth child. Maybe you're going through various scenarios like this and you see no way that this chapter can connect. So my job as a preacher is to show you this morning how intensely relevant these themes are for you. And I'm going to make that case much more clearly at the end of the sermon than right now. But I think we can see, if I can just lay my cards on the table, what I'm going to say is the fact that you have an intelligent personal enemy that seeks to destroy your soul couldn't be more relevant. We're going to talk more about that at the end of the message. 
So this morning, Revelation 12, we're at a new section in this amazing book. We've taken a couple of weeks of break, uh, doing some other things, and now we're back to Revelation. And in Revelation 12, there's really a, a new phase of this book. Revelation 6 through 11 has covered roughly a, a focus of wrath and judgment that comes from heaven to earth on human beings, on people who have hated Uh, the people of God, and are receiving the just penalty for their opposition to God and their persecution of the people of God. And we're going to continue to see those themes in future chapters as well. Now, the devil and his demons have not been entirely absent. We saw in Revelation 9, the king of the, I believe, demons, the billowing smoke that comes up out of that abyss, their king is called Abaddon or Apollyon, and we saw that, and that's Satan, and we talked some about that. But now, we are just going to delve right into understanding Satan and his angels, demons, and their activity. We're going to see his, his dark activities, his existence, and his, his actions unveiled. And that's what this book is about. Apocalypse means the unveiling, the revealing of things that we cannot see with our physical eyes. Now, we've already seen so many incredible, invisible things unveiled in this book. Revelation 1 through 3 has Christ in his resurrection glory unveiled as the high priest ministering among the seven golden lampstands. And he's walking among the seven golden lampstands, a symbol of his ongoing, conscious, energetic ministry to every local church around the world throughout all time. Those seven golden uh, lampstands representing actual, literal uh, local churches, but then extended out to every local church. Revelation 4 saw unveiled for us Uh, Almighty God seated on his throne in the heavenly realms with concentric circles around 24 elders and living creatures and a hundred million angels ready to do his bidding and constantly worshiping him for creating the universe. Revelation 5 we have unveiled for us Christ as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain for sinners all over the world, having the right, the only one who had the right to take the scroll from the right hand of God That scroll sealed with seven seals. Revelation 6, he breaks open those seals. And the first six seals starts judgments happening on earth that I argue at the time have covered the entire realm of church history of 20 centuries, but would culminate in the final cataclysmic end of the universe. The six seals. And then Revelation 7 answers the question at the end of Revelation 6, the great day of the wrath of God and of the Lamb has come, and who is able to stand Couldn't be a more relevant question. Who will be able to stand on the day of God's wrath? Revelation 7 is the amazing answer. Unveiled for us is the final uh, uh, company of the redeemed. From the Jews first and also from every tribe and language and people and nation. And they're standing with white robes and they're saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so there's that answer to the question and we yearn to be part of that that great company of the redeemed whose sins have been forgiven by the blood of Christ, Revelation 7. Then Revelation 8 and 9, the seventh seal unfolds or unleashes the seven trumpets. And so the trumpets begin specific cataclysmic judgments on planet Earth. You don't see with the six seals, but you see specific judgments that come on the ecology of the Earth, on every living, uh, uh, growing green thing, the grass, the trees... The fresh water, the salt water, uh, tremendous judgments on the ecology of the earth. And then we see specific judgments in Revelation 9 coming on the, on the people of the earth, on their bodies, sores coming on them as they're afflicted by demonic oppression. 
and then even slaughtered. A third of human, the human race slaughtered in a war that seems demonically uh, incited by an army of 200 million strange supernatural warriors that kill a third of the human race, maybe two to three billion people. And then in Revelation 10, a break, we saw unveiled a mighty angel. One foot on the land, one foot on the sea, his head up in the, in the clouds, mighty angel. And he, the seven thunders cry out and John hears the seven thunders and is about to write down, but he's told not to write them down, symbolizing things you could know, but you're not allowed to know about the future. Things that God has chosen not to tell us. But then a scroll in the hand of the angel, and he is told, John is told to eat the scroll, and, and he takes it into himself, sweet in his mouth, bitter in his stomach, but it represents, and then he's commissioned to go write many things for every tribe, language, people, and nation, which I think represents the, the, the concluding book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, which he was to write to make it clear to us what is going to happen, so we can know the future as much as we need to know. Not everything we could know, but what we do need to know. And then the end of Revelation 11, the sounding of the seventh trumpet, which will unleash into the seven bowls. Now we have a break, again, a seam, and we're going to look behind the scenes to see Satan and demons and their activity. And we're going to go through that for the next number of chapters because his number one henchman will be the beast from the sea, who we know as the Antichrist, and then the false prophet that comes to tout worldwide worship for the Antichrist. We're going into Revelation 13 and the effects of that uh, following. So the... We're, going to, we're, we're understanding the three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're going to zero in on the devil and the world for the rest of this section until the second coming of Christ. How the world will increasingly be the enemy of the people of God. And how Satan's behind that. He's going to use government. He's going to use the Antichrist. He's going to bear down and press on the people of God in the most intense wave of persecution ever seen. Which will produce in the end the second coming of Christ and his rescue of his bride. So that's where we're going in the book. But now we're going to zero in on the dragon, this red dragon, Satan, and his activities. And the text makes it very clear who we're talking about. We don't have, any, we don't have to wonder. So often the details are hard to interpret. But if you look at verse 9, again, I don't think this could be any clearer. Revelation 12, 9. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. That covers just about every base. So we know exactly who we're talking about with this red dragon. We don't have to wonder, but we're talking about Satan, the devil. C.S. Lewis, in his classic on temptation called the Screwtape Letters, said this at the beginning. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And they themselves are equally pleased with both errors. And they hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So now I have myself known people who have an unhealthy, excessive interest in the occult. I used to live near Salem, Massachusetts. There are people there that take the occult very seriously. They would openly call themselves, I don't think they would use the word witches, but they are earth religion worshiper types. And they take this very seriously. This is openly their lifestyle. And they have an unhealthy interest in the occult. I think you, I saw the same thing in Haiti with voodoo practitioners. I think we see in, in the movie industry an increasing interest in, this, in the dark supernatural. 
And so that's the, unha- that's the one side of the equation. But for the most part, I've lived my life uh, surrounded by effectively materialists. People who don't think much about devils. They actually might kind of make fun of the idea. Thinking of a mythology and, you know, a devil on your shoulder, an angel on your shoulder, a devil behind every bush. These kind of things. As though it's not a factor. So they're actually actively living as materialists. I went to MIT. I was surrounded by materialists there. People who can explain everything by science. And the world has a misunderstanding of Satan. They, uh, the, Satan desires that we underestimate him. That we underestimate his effect on your life. His effect on your physical well-being, your emotional and spiritual well-being. That, he, that you underestimate his impact on your marriage, your parenting, your job, your studies as a student. He wants you to underestimate him. So there are images of Satan in this red suit with you know, horns and a, a tail, I guess, with a pitchfork. I don't know where these images come from. But it's a mockery kind of thing so that you underestimate him. He's fine with that. Or a misunderstanding of his uh, native habitat as though he kind of lives in hell. And he just loves the heat. And he's not bothered by it. The lake of fire is his eternal punishment. And it's the punishment for the devil and his angels, we're told. Jesus said in, in the sheep and the goats teaching. He is not there now. He dreads going there. So he doesn't live down in hell. That's not his native habitat. Now this chapter speaks of Satan's great power. He's a very powerful being. I mean, if I could just lay out the two lessons. Satan's extremely powerful, but nowhere near as powerful as Jesus. That's kind of the lesson of this chapter. We need to be aware of how powerful he is, but we need to understand how much more powerful Almighty God is. Satan is the central figure, this powerful being, central figure in the general rebellion that is going on right now, both in the heavens and on the earth. Satan's tail sweeps a third of the stars and flings them to the ground. And we know from verse 9, these are his angels. So we don't have to wonder, what are the stars? They, they represent his angels. Other scriptures link stars and angels. So he was instrumental in corrupting holy angels and turning them into demons to join in his rebellion against Almighty God. He is said, as we'll talk more later in a moment, uh, leading the whole world astray. The whole world is under his sway. He's a very powerful being. And so God wants us to know his power. As Martin Luther puts it, in a mighty fortress is our God. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, put our trust, our striving would be losing. So we need to know that about the devil. He's very powerful, but we also need to understand the next part of the hymn. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Are you asking who I'm talking about? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, that's Hebrew for Lord Almighty is his name. From age to age the same, and he must win, will win the battle. We know that at the cross, Jesus Christ, by his death, we're told in Hebrews 2, verse 14, by Christ's death, he destroyed him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And freed those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus has set us free. 
what a mighty victory Jesus won by his own death. And so we need to understand Satan's great power. But we also need to see his great defeat. Or defeats, really. I mean, in this chapter, he's a five-time loser. He loses, then he loses some more, and then he loses even more, and then he loses again, and then finally he loses. He's a five-time loser in this chapter. For example, first, he tries to devour the male child as soon as it's born. But he can't, because God snatches the child up to his throne. Then he fights against the archangel Michael and his angels, but he's lost, but he loses, and he's thrown down to the earth. And he pursues the woman, but God prepares a place for her in the desert where she's kept safe for 1,260 days. And then he wants to drown the woman with a a torrent that comes out of his mouth, uh, but the earth swallows up the river. And then, so filled with rage, because he knows his time is short, he directs his attention at the children of the woman, those who obey God's commands and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He's trying to destroy them so they no longer obey God's commands and don't hold to the testimony of Jesus. But he fails. Praise God. He's a five-time loser just in this chapter. But he is, not infinitely, but vastly more powerful than you or I. So that's where we're at in Revelation 12. All right, so let's begin. We're going to spend our attention today on verses 1 through 6, just that section. When I first began writing this sermon, I was going to do the whole chapter in one sermon. No chance. (laughs) There's just no way. There's just so much in this chapter that we need to know. So we're going to zero in on verses 1 through 6. Now, I will say someone reminded me of a painful memory I had in the history of my preaching ministry here where I preached this for Christmas one time. I don't know why I thought this was an appropriate Christmas message because the male child was born and the devil was trying... But people want, they want shepherds and angels and songs and happiness. They don't want dragons devouring babies. And so, and, and some friends reminded me of that for over two or three years after that. They didn't stop. Some of the other elders thought it was good to keep reminding me. Remember that Christmas sermon? We're going to have part two on that this year. Going to go back, you know, that kind of thing. So I will not preach this for Christmas ever again. But it's not Christmas now. And we need to understand exactly what uh, this text is talking about, verses 1 through 6. This is a failed assassination, is what it is. The dragon tries to kill the woman's son. So this is the first battle we have in this uh, scripture, this chapter. Satan attempts to kill Jesus before his time. Now, there are three figures, symbolic figures in this drama. We've got the glorious woman in the heavens... Then the dragon, the red dragon, who is openly interpreted for us in verse 9. That's easy. And the male child who will rule all the world with a rod of iron, who's snatched up to God's throne. Well, as I said, the dragon's the easiest of the three to uh, identify. Satan, the devil, the ancient serpent. The male child who Satan hates and is fighting against, therefore he is good and righteous, rules the world and is caught up to the throne of God must be Christ. I don't see who else it could be. But who is the woman who gives birth to the male child? And what is the significance of the 1260 days in which she's protected? So let's go through it in orderly fashion. Verse 1, it says, A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. It's called a great and wondrous sign. Signs are symbols, a symbolic language 
uses representations to teach literal truth. So with the book of Revelation, you're trying to get beyond the symbolic language to reality. Physical or spiritual reality. That's what we're trying to do with the book of Revelation. Trying to understand the signs. This sign, we're told, appeared in heaven. So even though most of the events on the, uh, uh, in this chapter occur on earth, the drama is happening on earth, the sign we have of the woman is in heaven. The woman is portrayed as glorious. She's clothed with the sun. So she's radiantly bright. Um, the moon is under her feet. A crown of 12 stars on her head symbolizes to some degree just her glory. She's in an exalted, powerful position. She has a crown of 12 stars around her head. And there are some among you that would like me to get into lots of details on the stars. I can't do it. Many will write articles about this, etc. I think the number 12 is significant because it points either to the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Both of those are pictured in the New Jerusalem. But I can't say more than that about the 12 stars. All I'm saying is this woman is radiantly, brightly glorious in the heavens. And she gives birth to a male child. Verse 2, it says she's pregnant, cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And then look who she gives birth to. Verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Well... This must be Christ, as I've said. So therefore, the woman gives birth to Christ in some symbolic spiritual way. Now, obviously, Jesus' physical earthly mother was Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus. We believe in a literal woman, a Jewish woman, who was betrothed to a man, Joseph, lived in Nazareth, gave birth to Jesus. Jesus had a literal, real, physical, human mother. He was truly, fully human. And it came through his mother, Mary. He had no earthly father. However... Though Roman Catholic mystics will see the, the radiant, glorified mother of God, they might say, in Mary, and, and she is worthy of worship, really, of reverence as a co-redemptrix with Jesus. We Protestants have rejected this kind of glorification of Mary. I think she vigorously would do the same. She was a sinner saved by her son. She, in her song, the Magnificat, talked about a savior. And so she needed a savior. Jesus was not taking advice from his mother at the wedding at Cana in Galilee on how to run his ministry. If we can just get this straight, I'm going to take my marching orders from my father, not from my mother. So every day I'll do what my father tells me. He honored her. She didn't fully understand always who he was. At one point, she came with her other sons to take charge of Jesus because it was said he was out of his mind. However, on the day of Pentecost, she is there in the upper room with the other believers waiting to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Godly woman, a sinner saved by grace. A paradigm example for young women on how to carry yourself under a very difficult mission from God. But she's not, she's not a goddess. She's not worthy of being worshipped. She's not up there in some equal role with Jesus up in heaven. So we would reject that. Then who is she? Who is this woman also, we would say very, a lot of things happened in this chapter to the woman that didn't happen in any way to Mary. Most likely, this is an idealized form of the Jewish nation. That's, what, I, that's, that's the, what I'm going to say. Others might have different views. I don't think it can be the church because how could the church give birth to Jesus? I don't see that at all. So instead, I think this is Israel... Because we're told in Romans 1, from Israel... Or Romans 9, from Israel came the human lineage of Jesus. And so there was a human lineage of Jesus that came through the Jews. 
Salvation came from the Jews. And so I want you to think, just remember back to my preaching in in the book of uh, Isaiah, how we have that heavenly Zion image, remember? Zion in heaven. And how in Isaiah 54, uh, she gives birth. She was barren, but now gives birth to children really all over the world. And that is a picture of the heavenly Zion that gives birth to believers. The Jewish nation then giving birth to believers. And Paul picks up on this image in Galatians 4 with this allegory he uses of Hagar and, Hagar and Sarah. And he said, now Hagar st- stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in bondage or slavery with her children. The physical Jerusalem, unbelieving, rejecting Christ. Th- that's not what he's talking about. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. So that's going to really click into the end of the chapter where the devil tries to chase the children of the woman. Believers. For it is written, be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Isaiah 54. Galatians 4. So, for me, the woman represents Israel in an idealized, heavenly, perfected form. Giving birth to children for God, but first and foremost, giving birth to Jesus, the Savior of the world. Now, this would fit into the 1260 days uh, prophecy, the prophecy of Daniel. Statement about the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24, which I'm not going to go into at all, except just briefly mentioning here. We'll go back into the 1260 days, time, times, and half a time later. But basically it clicks into that final phase of human history in which the focus of persecution will be, I think, on converted Jews. So all Israel will be saved and the Antichrist and Satan will focus on the woman and her children as they run for their lives. Which Jesus says they need to do in Matthew 24. Those who are in Judea should run to the mountains. So the labor pains that she's enduring going up to the birth of Jesus would talk about just all the devilish persecution of the Jews up until that time of which there was much. All right, that's the first sign. The second sign is the dragon. We've already identified him, but look at verse 3 and 4. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. It's another sign in heaven. So there's the heavenly realms that produce earthly results. That's what we need to see been a dynamic throughout the book of of Revelation. So this sign is in heaven. And so we're looking behind the physical scenes of what's happening on planet earth to see a spiritual drama going on behind behind all of that. So how is he described? Well, first he's called a dragon. Now obviously Satan is not a dragon. He's an angel. He's a fallen angel. The first most powerful fallen angel. Evidence from the Old Testament implies that Satan was a spectacularly glorious and beautiful and powerful angel. Ezekiel 28, verse 12. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Ezekiel 28, 17. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty. And you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. So a beautiful guardian cherub in the garden thrown to... Uh, the earth because of wickedness and corruption. Also, Satan presents himself with radiant beauty. In 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. 14, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. So 
So Satan was beautiful and can still appear to be beautiful, but his true nature is horrible and wicked and twisted. Thus the dragon imagery here. Now dragons are a fascinating study. And I've spent a lot of time studying dragons the last three or four weeks. You're like, why would you do that? Well, because of the text. <laughs> I knew this moment would come. And then I have to say, well, Pastor, do you really do you believe dragons existed? Well, I don't know. But I find it interesting that artistic representations of dragons are the same in China and Scotland. And they're really old. I find that interesting, provocative. So you can come later and tell me what you think about that. Did they ever exist? Doesn't make much difference. But we could say this. They're an image, this image is one of great power and danger. That's what the dragon image is here. So you've got China and you've got England and Scotland. You've got legends like St. George fighting the dragon. And the cross of St. George is on the flag of the United Kingdom. Patron saint of England, they claim. Of course, you've got fictitious representation of dragons, many. Probably the most famous is Tolkien in The Hobbit. The dragon Smog is a fire-breathing flying beast. Seeming, seemingly almost impossible to kill. But then you have the Leviathan creature in Job, which describes a fire-breathing, powerful creature. Job 41, 13 through 33. I didn't quote the whole thing, but I quoted parts of it. This is the Leviathan. Who can strip off its, his outer coat? Who would approach him with a bridle? Who dares to open the doors of his mouth, ringed about with fearsome teeth, his His back has rows of shields tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between. His snorting throws out flashes of light. His eyes are like rays of dawn. Firebrands stream from his mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from his nostrils as from a boiling pot over a fire of reeds. His breath sets coals ablaze and flames dart from his mouth. That's four straight verses on fire breathing. So this just can't be a crocodile or alligator or rhinoceros or hippopotamus. When he rises up, the mighty are terrified and they retreat before his thrashing. The sword that reaches him has no effect. Nor does the spear or dart or javelin. In other words, you humans can't kill it. Nothing on earth is his equal. A creature without any fear. Leviathan. So Satan is likened to a mighty dragon, overpowering in his strength, terrifying and thoroughly evil. And he's enormous. The size of the dragon heightens the terror one feels when seeing it. An enormous dragon. It's no ordinary adversary. And he's red, the color of fire, the color of war. And he has seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. I think this represents total domination of planet Earth, of every nation on Earth. He rules the world. You remember how Satan said to Jesus, showing him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, all this has been given to me, I can give it to anyone I want to. Now when we get to the Antichrist, I'm going to say he's been playing the game of divide and conquer because he hates every human being. But he's going to consolidate in the final analysis behind the Antichrist. We'll get to that. But he rules all of the wicked kings of the earth. He is the wicked king behind all wicked kings. And he is the wicked lord behind all wicked lords. Total domination. Ephesians 2.2. The ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. 
or 1 John 5, 19. The whole world is under the sway of the evil one. So the dragon is in charge of the whole world with its rulers under his dark secret sway. He is the puppet master. It's interesting that both of the accounts that we believe in the Old Testament of Satan, the text doesn't directly talk to Satan. It talks to a king of Tyre or a king of Babylon. But we all kind of know he's talking beyond the human figurehead to the real power behind Tyre and the power behind Babylon, Satan. He's the puppet master. And with his tail, he swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung flung them to the earth. As we see in verse 9, these stars represent his angels. We don't tend to call them angels, although the New Testament does frequently, the devil and his angels. They are angels, but they're fallen angels. We call them demons. They're personal, intelligent, spiritual beings who wreak havoc on the earth under Satan's dominion. The one-third number shows that a vast number of angels fell into rebellion, but not all of them. As a matter of fact, not even most of them. Two-thirds didn't. Two-thirds remained holy and true to God. Now, Satan is ready to murder the woman's child the moment he is born. Look at verse 4. The dragon stood in front of the woman who's about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. Jesus said in John 8 that he is a murderer. From the beginning he was a murderer, a liar, and the father of lies. This also reminds me of the evil attack of Pharaoh on all the Jewish boy babies during the, the time of bondage in Egypt. And then, of course, the attack of Haman during the book of Esther on the whole Jewish nation. And certainly reminds us of the 20th century anti-Semitic attack by Hitler and the Nazis. He, he hates the woman. He hates anything that comes from the woman. He hates the people of God. All right, now we get to the male child. Verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. There is little doubt this must be Jesus Christ. As I said, he's a good human baby born to rule, and his rule cannot be broken. This, the language of uh, he will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, the word iron refers to something that cannot be broken. So it points to the eternality of Christ's scepter or rule. His kingdom and his dominion last forever and ever. But the language comes directly from Psalm 2, as we quoted even quite recently. Psalm 2, a messianic Davidic psalm, which talks about the worldwide rebellion against the son of David, ultimately against Christ. And then in the middle of it, these words, Psalm 2, verse 7 through 9, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He, God, God the Father, said to me, I think this is Jesus speaking, you are my son, today I have begotten you or become your father. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. The end of the earth is your possession. You will rule them with a rod of iron or with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. So we're going to see this image again at the second coming of Christ. When the devil and his lead henchmen, the beast from the sea, the Antichrist, gather an army to exterminate the people of God, the bride of Christ... Jesus is motivated to come from heaven to rescue her. And he comes back, Revelation 19, in all this glory, military power from heaven. Revelation 19, 15, and 16 says, Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. That's a quote right from Psalm 2. 
He treads the winepress of the fury, the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the righteous king of all righteous kings. He is the righteous Lord of all righteous lords. And under him, we will reign forever. And he will topple the wicked king of all wicked kings and the wicked lord of all wicked lords. And he will rule in in their place forever. Look at the failed assassination attempt in verse 4 and 5. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. So he could not kill Jesus. Now, Satan is pictured at the moment of birth to, to pounce on this baby and kill it. And anybody who knows the history of Jesus' birth knows this must relate to what wicked King Herod did in trying to kill Jesus right after he was born. You know, the story is told in Matthew chapter 2. The Magi, the wise men, came from the east following a star. They go to Jerusalem where King Herod is, and they ask, where is the one who is born King of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed, put it mildly, and all Jerusalem with him. I'm King of the Jews. I'm not going to brook any rival. So he tries to use the Magi to point out where Jesus is, but they are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. They go to a country, their country by another route. Then God warns Joseph not to stay there, but Herod is going to search for the child to try to kill him. So Joseph gets up immediately that night, takes the mother Mary and the baby Jesus, and they flee to Egypt immediately. And so they're rescued. When Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. It's one of the most disgusting, dastardly acts that ever happened in redemptive history. Revelation 12 gives a spiritual background. Herod didn't act alone. Herod is fully accountable for what he did, for the decision he made, but the devil was behind it. And they're actually in some ways alike. They're threatened by Jesus. Magi had said to Herod that Jesus was born king of the Jews. And Herod, that was his title, and he was willing to kill a baby, actually many babies, to jealously protect his evil rule. Satan knows that Jesus is born king of the world. But that's his title. And he is willing to kill a baby, in fact, many babies, to protect his title, king of the world. So Satan is a ravenous beast. He's bloodthirsty for human blood. Slaughtering babies in Egypt in the time of Pharaoh. Slaughtering babies in Bethlehem at the time of Herod. Trying to kill the serpent slayer that was predicted to the woman. Serpent who we know from verse 9, that's, that was the devil. In case you didn't know who the snake was in the Garden of Eden, that's the devil, that ancient serpent. And he's talking to the woman. And to some degree, they make a covenant together to rebel against God. And then they draw Adam into it. But God severs that covenant. In Genesis 3.15, God speaking to the serpent and through him, to the, behind the puppet, to the puppet master, Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, the seed of the woman, will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. So by his death, the serpent slayer crushed Satan. 
So what the devil was trying to do is kill Jesus before his time. And the dragon wasn't done at that point. Thwarted, he continues to try to kill Jesus before his time. This happened again and again. As Jesus began his public ministry there in his hometown of Nazareth, he said something that offended the people. They pushed him to the edge of a cliff to push him over and have him die with many broken bones, not lifted up, not shedding his blood as an atoning sacrifice. Didn't happen. Moves right through the crowd and passes on. Happens again and again in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 7, they want to kill him, but they couldn't take him. They couldn't arrest him because his hour had not yet come. John chapter 8 happens again. They want to kill him, but he had, they couldn't take him because his hour had not yet come. At the end of John chapter 8, he claims, before Abraham was born, I am. They pick up stones to stone him, but they can't do it. They would break all of his bones. Couldn't kill him because... It's, but Satan's behind all of these. Now, Revelation 12 does not mention all of these attempts, just the one right when he was born. Nor does it mention Jesus' death on the cross, which conquered Satan by Jesus' death. Jesus made it plain that neither Satan nor any human being could take his life from him. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down freely of my own accord. He said in John 14, 30, the prince of this world is coming. He has nothing on me. He has no accusation. He has no power over me. But the world must learn that I obey my father. So Satan had no power. And you know that how, how when Judas took the bread, identifying him as the betrayer, Satan entered into him. He goes off, gets a bunch of soldiers. They come to arrest Jesus. So Satan infested Judas is there. And Jesus said, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. And they drew back, including Satan, and fell to the ground. Isn't that encouraging? Fell to the ground. Jesus laid down his life. Satan didn't take it. But this verse says, her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. So God protected Jesus until the time came for him to die as a substitutionary atonement, a bloody sacrifice without any of his bones broken. That time came, he died. Satan failed to kill him. And then God took him from planet earth and he ascended through the sky, through the clouds, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And he goes up through the heavenlies, the book of Hebrews continues the journey, through the heavenly realms to the right hand of almighty God. He's snatched up to God and to his throne, and that's where he sits, at the right hand of God, interceding for you and me, and there's nothing Satan can do to reach him. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21 puts it this way. God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Far above Satan's dominions and powers and all of that. Infinitely above it. And then the text says that God protected the woman. Verse 6, the woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Pause, more next time on that. But that refers to the last three and a half years of human history of overt persecution from the devil and his henchmen. At the end of this chapter, he's standing on the shore of the sea waiting to call out the beast of the sea. We'll get to him in a few weeks. All right, really quickly, the failed revolution, verse 7 through 9. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Now, here's the challenge about verses 7 through 9. Is this referring to the earlier casting down of Satan before even the Garden of Eden? primordial battle in which he was cast down as Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 talks about you were cast down to the earth or 
So does it refer to a yet future battle that hasn't even happened yet, that will happen, in which Satan is cast down and loses heavenly access to accuse the brothers before the throne, and he comes down for one final kick against the people of God ending the world history. Just like me, whenever I get to a, a difficult, challenging thing like this, I end up preaching them both. So what I think is that this could refer to the earlier one that's cast down and to a later one. That Satan earlier tried to take over heaven. And he was cast down to the earth. It says in Isaiah 14, verse 12, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star. KJV has Lucifer, son of the dawn. All right, You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. The casting had already happened. Same thing in the language of Ezekiel 28 as we already saw it. Why did it happen? Because he said in his heart, I will ascend. I will raise myself up. I will take the throne of God. I will make myself be like the Most High. I will be worshipped. I will reign heaven and earth. But he was cast down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. That pride began the wickedness in the universe. So if anyone in an apologetic situation ever asks, where did evil come from in a perfectly good universe? Say, I don't know where it originated from, but I believe it was when the devil tried to take over heaven. That's where it started. So they were cast down, and we'll talk more about that. But I think it's also valuable to look at this as a possibility of a future battle in which Satan doesn't even have access to the throne of God like he has in the book of Job and like he's there accusing us day and night before the throne of God. That'll be done. We'll talk about that next time. We're also going to talk about next time in the following weeks Verses 13 through 17, in which the devil bears down on the woman and her children who hold to the testimony of Jesus and who resist, I would say, the Antichrist and worshiping him, and he becomes their persecutor. We'll talk about that in the future. So let's just take a few moments and do some application, and we'll be done. First, as I do every single week, I yearn to preach the gospel simply. This is not an easy chapter for even advanced Christians who've been studying the Bible a long time to understand. It's hard. Details are hard. And it could be that you came here just... You know that you're lost. You know that you're not a Christian. You, you came here because you went on the internet for a church or somebody invited you. And you heard all this complex detail about the future and about Satan. All right, let me make it very, very simple and clear. The devil hates every human being. Christian or non-Christian. Hates them all. And the devil has crafted a world system that lures human beings into sin and into death and eternal death and hell. God, because he loved us, sent his son to take the penalty, the hell we deserve, on himself. And all you need to do is repent of your sins, acknowledge that you have sinned, that you have violated the commands of God, that you know that you're guilty and you have no hope of forgiveness apart from Christ. Trust in Christ. Find in Christ a Savior. Then and only then can you resist the attacks of the devil and the accusations of the devil only in Christ. So flee to Christ. Find refuge in Him. And don't be a materialist thinking that this, the universe created itself. How did that happen? Or that the world evolved itself. We know that by faith we understand, Hebrews eleven three that the universe was created at God's will by the Word of God. That's what belief is all about. Trust in a personal creator, savior. And by Christ alone, you'll be able to stand the accusations of the devil. Romans 8, 
33 through 35 says, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Now, for you Christians, I'm going to go back to that relevance uh, topic. All right? I was just struggling with relevance. Red dragon, woman, baby born. Okay? What in the world does that have to do with my life? All right, well, let me, let me just give you an analogy. I came up with this as we are driving, and my kids and I were talking about this text, and this popped in my head. This is the image. All right, let's imagine that you were elected to represent a district in Congress. And you go to D.C., and within a year, you're given an important place on a committee that is dealing with uh, organized crime. And you're going to put forward some le- legislation that's going to put a real dent in organized crime. One morning, you go into your office, and they're sitting in your office, there are two men dressed in suits, G-men, and you sit down with them and say, can I help you? You say, this is agent so-and-so, this is, we're with the FBI, and we have good information that organized criminals are going to assassinate you and your family. Would that be relevant to your life? Would you find that relevant? Imagine if you said, you know, we've got tickets tonight, tonight's game, we bought them online, and we're going to go. I'm not letting this, I'm not going to show any fear. It's like you bought them online. They're, you have your seat numbers figured out. You know the game time, what route you're going to go, the most efficient route to the... They know all that too. How do you know your car's not going to blow up? How do you know your, kid, your kids won't be kidnapped this very afternoon? You would be a fool not to take such a warning seriously. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 and 9 says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are going through the same kinds of suffering. That's how this is relevant to you. In the text here, it's not a a lion, but a dragon. Same thing. Coming after you. So I would like you to think more supernaturally. Suppose you and your spouse are having significant conflicts. You've been arguing about money. You've been arguing about this, arguing about that. Do not imagine that you're alone in your argument. Do not imagine that they're not demons that are spurring the two of you on to start hating each other and being divided from each other. When things pop in your head to say, don't imagine they came from you. Imagine possibly they're being fed to you by a demon in Satan's name who hates you and would love your marriage to end. Or when you're surfing the, 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 the web and you're going from place to place, don't imagine that the... Uh, that the pull you may feel to look at lustful images on the internet is just you and your flesh. Don't imagine that for a moment. There is an intelligent, evil being, a presence in the room luring you to destroy your soul with internet images. When you are struggling with covetousness and greed and you, you're tempted to become a workaholic or, or as you think about your education and you want to go on to advanced degrees and all that, and all of your estimation, you're thinking about a prosperous life and you're not really thinking about God or Christ or missions or anything, don't imagine the devil's not involved in that. That he's not feeding you a worldly image of a safe, comfortable, self-seeking life that he wants you to live. He is involved in all of these things. And so the text says in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 2, we are not unaware of his schemes. We need to be mindful. 1 Peter 5 says, resist him standing firm in the faith. Where does faith come from but the word of God? So you came in here this morning and you heard about a red dragon. It's real. It's an image. It's apocalyptic imagery, but it's real. You have a personal enemy who wants to destroy your soul. So fight. 
Fight. Put on the full armor of God, Ephesians 6. Put on the full armor of God and take your stand against the devil's schemes. And lift up the shield of faith. Lift up the sword of the spirit. Put on the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness. And fight, fight, fight. Don't give in to temptations and sins and wickedness. And see the evil power behind current events. I'm not talking about, obviously, hurricanes and earthquakes and all that. There's no human agency in that. But there are evil things happening all over the world with terrorist groups, terrorist cell groups, with rogue states that threaten thermonuclear holocausts, with other states like Myanmar that are purging out the Muslims by genocide. These are demonic things. Boko Haram, ISIS, the Somalian warlords that are making life utterly miserable for people in those regions of the world. Don't imagine it's just human beings doing bad things. The devil is behind these regimes and these wicked people. And therefore, finally, pray. Pray. Matthew 6.13 says, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us literally from the evil one. Not just general evil. In the, the Greek is personal. The evil one. Pray that God would deliver you from the works and the assaults of the devil. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the things that we've learned today. We thank you for the way that you've taught us the word of God. We pray, O Lord, that you would please strengthen each one of us to fight, to put on the full armor of God so that we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. Father, I pray that you would please be working even now in hearts of people that have come here that are not not sure they're believers or know that they're not believers, that while there's time, they would cross over from death to life and find life in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.